Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. So I'm currently sitting here alone in Mark's, what he calls his office, but really is just a collection of all the rubbish in their house. There's some weights. He doesn't look like he's been using those. I can see a, a teapot for some reason. I don't think he never offered me tea. It's all very, very strange. Oh, I'll be quiet. He's on his way back. Hello. Hello and welcome to the In For A Penny podcast. I'm Mark Schoffman, a freelance personal finance journalist, and I'm joined by my financial planner friend Joshua Gersler, who runs the Orchard Practice Advisory Business. Hello. You can find out more about me by following me on Twitter at Mark Schoffman. And check out Josh at the Orchard Practice website on topfs.co.uk. Each episode, we aim to give our perspective on the world of finance and money and some of the issues that crop up in business as well as everyday life. We'll start off by trying to shed some light on corporate jargon in our alien concept section. Then we'll look at some of the issues that we come across when running our businesses before finishing up with a finance topic that we've come across recently. We hope you'll learn something new from our podcast as well as having some fun along the way too. Sounds good to me. Good. Hello, Josh. Hello, Mark. Lovely to see you again. And you? So, on our previous episode, we should probably hark back to that. Yeah. Because uh, we were actually talking about Christmas parties. We were. So, um, listeners of episode one may be keen to know how um, our festive season was. How was your party? Thank Mark? you for asking. As many of our um, subscribers and downloaders will know, I went to Junkyard Golf, which is an indoor crazy golf arena. And how was it? Great, I think. There were six of us. I came third. Okay, mid-table. Mid-table, which I think is respectable. I lost to two girls, but you know, I'm all about equality. It sounds like it, yeah. yeah. I need to ask you about one thing, though. Sure. So we were on hole nine. Yeah, okay. One of the final holes. I was quite near the top at the time. It was neck and neck. Yeah, and, and the pressure probably got pressure, to you, pressure, though, yeah. Possibly. Yeah. And it's a tower, and you're supposed to hit the ball up a ramp. The option is to just go up the ramp, yeah. and it goes round and round and round and down. Or... Yeah. If you just hit it to the left, bypass the ramp, and you go off the course right. and straight to where the hole is. Right. So you don't actually take part in the crazy golf section, you just do golf. Okay. I did that. Yeah. So I went over, straight to the hole. and that was then, like a good tactical move. Thank you. In and two, I was told that's not allowed. By who? My competitors. Hmm. And what did the rules say? The rules are not specific. Okay, so I th- I'd allow it. Yeah, but yeah. apparently not, not in the spirit of the game because you're not actually partaking in the crazy aspect. Okay. What do you think? I th- I, as I said, I think that's allowed. If it doesn't say you, you have to go up the ramp, then go for it. Why yeah. not? Use your initiative, and I like people who use their initiative. Thank you. Is it cheating, though? No. Anyway, cheaters never prosper, if it was cheating, but alleged cheaters never prosper because I came third, so I didn't win. When we last spoke, yeah. and we referred to Christmas parties, we talked about alcohol and the level of drinking. Yeah. Any any scandal? No, it was, our, our party was very, um, I wouldn't say very tame, but everyone was very well behaved. Everyone had a couple of drinks in the bar, um, a drink or two with dinner, mm-hmm. and then I went home afterwards. I don't think anyone went on anywhere afterwards, or they didn't invite me if they That's if they did. Yeah. yeah, but the staff stayed. Do you worry about what they talk about when you're not there? Not really. Not no. until you just said that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about our last episode. Thank you to everyone who downloaded. Yeah, we had some really good feedback from people, very honest and open feedback, because some people just said it's great, which is lovely to nice hear. Nice to hear. But we know we're not, we've got a long way to go to make sure we do, uh, we do this really well. So it was nice to the, for the people that gave us some really constructive feedback. Hmm. What do you think was the most 
significant piece of feedback you have. The one that made me laugh the most was the one when someone said, you are monotone. Yeah, I took a bit of offence <laughs> to that. I've been trying to put a bit more joy into my voice. Because you're not, yeah, you're not monotone. I, if, I'm the one that's, that's a bit more monotone than you, so that was nice to hear. Made me giggle. I should never let my mum write in. No. Yeah. <laughs> and I think people gave us some good feedback about the order we should do the show in. Yes. If you would like to give us feedback or ask us any questions, you can post a review on iTunes or SoundCloud and also on our Twitter feed at InForAPennyPod and the number one. And now, that sound means it's time for this episode's Alien Concept. Exciting. Good, I'm glad you're excited. So for each podcast, we're going to discuss a piece of business or financial jargon and look at why it makes no sense and how it can be simplified. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to hand you a piece of paper. Yeah. Just so people know this is realistic. This is the paper. Yeah. That's what a piece of paper sounds like. And I'm going to hand it to you, Josh, and you're going to open it. Okay. And tell me what it says. It says annuity. Annuity. I thought you might do that because we mentioned it in our last episode, didn't we? And a we couple did. of people asked about people it. People did say it would be good to have a bit of explanation. So I've done a bit of my own research. Okay. Well, I have written about annuities in the past, but I've kind of dug a bit deeper. So the word annuity yeah. comes from the Latin. Oh, blimey, for, yeah. I've got to say this carefully, because if I say this wrong, it's going to make you laugh and may sound a bit rude. So if God. you have any children listening, we may recover the ears. Annuity comes from anus. Yeah. Yeah? Okay? I'm smirking. I'm not smirking. All right, so, and that's the Latin for anus, which is year. Okay. In medieval Latin, it's annuus. Yeah. And then sort of French is annuité. Okay. So the idea is something yearly. Yes. But when I've written about pensions and annuities, my understanding is it's not just something you get yearly, it's something you get monthly. So in many ways, these pension providers are talking out of their annuous. I see what you're doing there. Very, you very, very good. <laughs> so what's going on? An annuity is normally refers to pensions, but can be something where you receive a regular income. So when we refer to it in, in our profession in financial services, we're referring to a, an income from a pension. Mm-hmm. And annuities, when, in that sentence, makes it very simple, but they can be quite complex. So should we try and talk about different types of annuity and simplify things as much as we can? Yeah. Well, let's, so we start with, because obviously you build up your pension. Yeah. And then when you come to retire, yeah. the annuity is the one of the choices of products. Yeah, so if you've built up a pension pot by the time you retire of, let's pick a round number, a million pounds, mm-hmm. you then hand over your million pounds to an annuity provider who in return will give you a guaranteed income for life. So you're swapping your pension savings and in return getting a guaranteed income for life. Um, and there are different types. You could have a, I say for life, but you can have a fixed term annuity. Okay. So you could just have an annuity for five years if you wanted. Why would you want to do that? You may want to do that. Let's say you stop work at 63 and you've built up some pension savings and your state pension is due at age 68. Mm-hmm. You may say, well, I'll take an annuity for five years because I need that money to supplement me before my state pension starts to get paid. And what would happen to the rest of your pension pot? So when you take out a fixed term annuity... At the outset, as well as given a guaranteed income for life, you're given a guaranteed value that you could, your pension will be worth at the end of that fixed period. And then you can go on and do whatever you want. Yeah, so you can either use all the other pension options that are available to you at that point, or you can take out another annuity. What age can you take out an annuity? You can't access your pensions in the UK at the moment. Normally, because there are certain exceptions, but normally um, until age 55. 
Okay. And that's actually going up to age 57. Good. So by the time you and I get to retirement age, because we're very young, we've got a long yes. way to go, it'll be 57 and probably higher the way legislation goes. Interesting. I did not know that. Well, yeah, you need a bit more research. Yeah, <laughs> too busy looking at Latin words. Annuity rates are very low at the moment. Why? That's a bit too complex for today. Maybe okay. we'll cover that another time to do with interest rates and gilt yields and things like that. But compared to historical levels, the, the the amount you can get, the amount of annuity you can receive is much lower than it was maybe 10 years ago. So people actually aren't really choosing to take annuities at the moment. Mm. Some people have to. Yeah. And a lot of people are choosing not to. And obviously now you can just access your whole pension pot anyway. Correct. When you make the decision at the outset, You've got to be very careful because what you choose at that point is is set for the rest of your life. Mm. Unless you take one of these sort of fixed-term, flexible-type annuities, yeah. the choices you make now you can't be undone. That's annoying. It, well, it it is, um, but at the same time, it, it makes it fair for the annuity providers as well so they know what they're getting themselves in for. So I think you have to be very careful when picking an annuity. Um, if you don't know what you're doing, make sure you speak to your financial advisor, financial planner, pension provider, whoever it is, so you know that all the options. But things to think about are inflation. Okay. What's inflation? Um, in essence, inflation is prices going up. Okay. okay. The cost of things going up. And we, we let's dig into that another time. But so if your a million pound annuity gives you £50,000 a year today, but as time goes on, £50,000 is worth less. Mm-hmm. So 50000 today is is not the same as 50,000 in 10 years' time. So you need to think about whether you want an index-linked or an inflation-linked annuity. Okay. Okay. Other things to think about are, do you have a spouse, any dependents? So if you die, mm. if you just have a single life annuity, upon your death it ends. That's, you don't want that. Well, no. So if you're married, you might want to include a, a joint life annuity. So upon your death... Uh, the money gets paid to your spouse. Okay. And you can choose, do they get paid the same amount of income you were getting? Do they get paid half the level of income you were getting or or something that that suits your needs? And how regularly is your annuity paid? You can choose that as well. So you can choose to have it paid annually. You can have it quarterly. You can have it monthly. You can have it paid in advance. So at the beginning of the year, for the year ahead. Or in arrears, so at the end of the year for the year which is passed. Um, and all these decisions that you make, whether it's the indexation, how often it's paid, the spouse's thing, impact on how much you get. The more you add into it, the less you start with. Hmm. Lots of other things about annuities, or some other things about annuities. A lot of people worry that they'll give up their million pounds, and if they only live one year, they get £50,000 and they've lost yeah. £950,000 which is a valid concern. Mm -hmm. So you can put into place a couple of things. You can have a guaranteed period. So you could say, I want to make sure my income is guaranteed for 10 years. Right. Which means if you die after year one, it will still pay the income for the next nine years. To someone you choose. Correct, to your estate probably. Okay. If you die in year nine, it'll pay it for one more year. Mm -hmm. So you get a bit of of protection there. You can also put in place value protection where upon your death, if the full value of your annuity has not been paid out, whatever's left will get paid to you, whoever you choose, your estate or, or whatever it is. But all these things cost. So the simplest thing is to have single life, 
no inflation, no uh, guarantee period, no value protection, but it might not be the best thing. What if you come to taking your pension and you're sort of really unhealthy and you think, well, I'm going to, I like smoke 50 cigarettes a day. Uh, I'd never exercise. I'm not, I'm pretty past. I'm not going to last long. What's the point in taking this money? Well, it's actually very good. If you're, the more unhealthy you are, the higher annuity you can get. It actually works in your favour being a smoking, drinking, whatever else ah, as you are at the moment. Thank you. Yeah. Not smoking, but yeah. <laughs> at, um, at retirement age, because the, uh, the actuary will calculate your life expectancy. Mm-hmm. And so if they think you're going to live a shorter period of time, they'll pay your higher income. Interesting. Yeah. But you wouldn't recommend taking up smoking just to get your annuity? I would never recommend taking up smoking. <laughs> <laughs> and that's this episode's Alien Concept. This is our Penny for Your Thoughts section, when we're going to discuss some of the social issues that come up in the world of work and general life. Okay. For this episode, I'd like to talk about complaining. Yeah. Obviously, we live in a um, service-orientated economy. So you've got Amazon deliveries, restaurants, Uber. Like People like having stuff done for them or being served and going and getting stuff. What sort of level of service should you expect is what I want to discuss. Okay. Because I've been into restaurants where um, the seating has been tatty and you insist on being moved. How how early in a restaurant should you complain? What about the seating? Yeah. I've never, I don't think I've ever been in a restaurant and complained about the seating. So tell us a bit more about this. What happened? So we were, went into a restaurant, sat yeah. down and noticed that um, there were rips on the cushions. Uh, the upholstery wasn't very tidy. Okay. Obviously, that's not going to affect the taste of your food. No. But it affects your experience in the, the service. Ambience. The ambience. Should you complain about that? It just sounds like you're a moaning old man, Mark. <laughs> Did you go there thinking, I'd like to go, this is a smart restaurant with nice cushions and lovely upholstery? No, I went there because they probably serve us quickly and they have a decent kids menu. Yeah, I don't think moaning about the cushions is, is something worth complaining about. It might be that you you give that as feedback. We notice that the cushions are a bit torn and, and tatty and has put us off our, our meal a bit or put us coming back, rather than demanding to be moved. It's not like they had you sitting on the floor eating out of a bowl. No, you No, right. you put yours, yeah. Was it comfortable? Just a bit tired? No, I had to sit on... Sit on no. I had to sit on ripped furniture. Oh, dear. I mean, yeah. You've changed. <laughs> I can understand if the food's not cooked properly. You know, if there's a rip in your steak, mm. or your vegetables are a bit tatty, then fair enough. Yeah. Tatty, potato. Didn't think of that one. Good work. Yeah. We often have to complain at work. Tell me about that. Not about each other, no. but about... We deal with mortgage lenders all the time. So okay. when we're helping clients arrange mortgages for them, and a lot of them, the service is so bad that we have to complain. It could be because they're slow or they've misunderstood client documents. Mm. And um, there's a couple of ways you can go about it. You can call up and scream your head off and shout and swear at people, which might get you what you want. doesn't mm. win you any friends. Or you can talk about it nicely and constructively. And I think that's the key because people... I think people want to help. Genuinely, I think people want to help. If there's a, an issue, they want to deal with it. People like to be treated respectfully. Um, and I think if you say things in the right way, people will deal with things and respond to you in the right way. Mm, that is interesting because you do see different types of complainers. So you'll have the ones who, yeah, you'll get on the phone, they'll shout, be abusive. And then, yeah, you've got the ones who are more calm. Do you think being calm is more successful? In the long run, yeah. In, in, the, short, in the short run, is that a word? Short term? <laughs> short term. In the short term, you might get the same end result. 
but you won't build a relationship with someone so they want to help you. They do it, might be doing it because they're scared of you. But you see that, don't you, in the business world where, where you think of kind of the most well-known business people, they're sort of quite brash and assertive. Yeah. So isn't that an argument about being assertive? Well, I think assertive is a good thing. There's, there's assertive and aggressive nice. might be two different things. So you think of someone like Alan Sugar. Mm. He's probably a bit of both, isn't he? Yeah. He can be assertive, but sometimes he can probably... This is only from what I've seen on telly. I don't, I don't yeah. know him. He can probably go a bit over the, bit over the top. But a lot of that probably is just for the TV program. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm sure it's lovely. And it gives a lot of money to charity. If you're listening, Mr. Sugar, <laughs> feel free to come on the show and don't shout at us. Have you ever had complaints? Luckily, we get very, very few complaints because we try and look after our clients. And if there ever is an issue, we try and put it right as quickly as we can. But I had one interesting one about a year ago, and I've got to be careful how much I divulge. But I had a client, um, or two clients, I was re- arranging a mortgage for. And they were first-time buyers, and they were moving um, moving to a different area. And so we've got to make sure that, and from a, that the lender is comfortable, we've got to make sure they've got a new job where they're moving to. Because otherwise, the mortgage lender will say, well, when they move 200 miles away, mm. how are they going to pay the mortgage? Yeah. So we asked the clients what they were going to do, and they both said they were moving... Their companies had branches in these in this new city, and this gave me letters from the um, new employers confirming they had their positions lined up. So we sent these on to the mortgage lender, and the mortgage lender came back and said, we're not comfortable with these letters. Uh-huh. And I asked the clients about these. Well, one of the, sorry, they weren't comfortable with one of the clients, the wife, the okay. first couple. And I asked her a bit about it, and she said, "Well, they weren't writing it for me, so I wrote it myself and signed it from the uh, from the company." Wow, that's mortgage fraud. That is. So we had to tell our compliance people and tell our clients we're no longer able to act for them. Okay, that's what you have to distance yourself from yeah. these things. And the clients complained. Who did they complain to? To our complaints department. Yeah. Um, and said they've refused to do my mortgage. And so the, an investigation was opened. Yeah. By the way, this complaints department isn't us. It's, it's third party, so it's yeah. independent. And during the investigation, this client admitted to the complaints team that they had falsified, or she had falsified her reference, her yeah. employment letter. So they said, well, look, you're committing mortgage fraud. The auction practices are, are quite right not to act for you anymore. We, mm-hmm. we reject your complaint. So that was uh, a very strange one. Yeah. You would think... If you're going to commit fraud, yeah. don't admit it <laughs> and don't own up about it to the complaints department either. But that's what some people are, some people are like. Wow. Yeah. And that was a penny for your thoughts. If there's any issues you'd like us to look at, do feel free to leave questions on our iTunes or SoundCloud account or via Twitter at InforAPennyPod and the number one. And now on to serious matters. I think you wanted to raise a financial planning issue. Shall I tell you about another meeting I had again? Please do. So a client came into the office recently for their annual planning meeting okay. and decided they wanted to put, put some money away yeah. for their children's future. Okay. And what we've ended up doing is something called a junior ISA. Tell me about those. You probably, knowing you, you probably know a little bit about, a little bit about them. You've probably I done a bit of research. Yes. So it's basically an ISA for children. Okay. Children are allowed to put a certain amount into an ISA 
or I should say parents are allowed to put it in on behalf of their children. And so what this client is doing is putting in a few thousand pounds into an ISA for each child. There's three children. Mm. And paying in a monthly amount as well. Is this on top of what they already invest in their own ISA? Correct. So this, you have a junior ISA allowance per person, per child, which is in addition to your own individual allowance. Okay. So you as an adult, yeah. this year, supposed adult, are allowed to put away £20,000. Yeah. And for your children, you're allowed to put away £4,250 this year. Okay. And what we're doing, what well, the idea for, for this guy and his kids, he wants them to have some money when they're older. Mm-hmm. So he's going to put some money away for the next 15 years or so, a little bit each month. And hopefully by the time they get to about 18, there'll be a nice little nest egg there for, for all of them. And they can use that either to buy a house, yeah. buy a car, pay for a wedding, whatever it may be. So age 18 is when they can access it? It becomes theirs, correct. What if they want to just spend it on drugs and alcohol? Uh, I wouldn't encourage that. But they're allowed to. Yeah, it's their, it's their money. They can do what yeah. they want. And with a lot of clients, that is a concern. Yeah. And so we end up putting the money in the parents' names rather than the children's um, so that the parents retain control. Yeah. But you, when you've got a financial advisor, you've got a little bit of extra um, comfort because the children would need to contact us, us yeah. to ask them to take the money out. So if they come to us and say, right, I'm 18, can I have my money? We might want to have a conversation with them and try and understand what it's going towards. Mm. And if it is drugs and alcohol, we'll try and talk them out of it. Okay. So um, it's 4000 and something you can put in each each year, yeah. which is quite a lot of money. And if you're, you're a young family and you've got kind of bills and other stuff you want to pay for, how, how do you motivate someone to keep going with that when obviously eight, 18 years is a long way away and you think, well, we could afford a couple of holidays with this money? I don't, actually, because a lot of people come to me and say, I want to start putting away money for my children. And I say to them, you need to make sure you are financially secure first Mm. before you start giving money away to your kids that you can never get back. So that doesn't mean don't allocate money to them, but don't necessarily give it away, which is what you're doing when you put it into a junior ISA. But even a little bit, even if you could do £50 a month, that's £600 a year, over 10 years, that's £6,000 that you've, you've put aside for your children. Hmm. That's assuming no growth and no fees, just all being all things being equal, you put £6,000 away from them, which I'm sure they'd appreciate when they get to the right age. Or not. No means kids. Or kids of today, yeah. Kids of today. So you can invest a junior ISA. You can. Or you can also put it like, like a simile with a normal cash ISA. There are junior versions of that. You are correct. You can put your money in cash, which is a bank account, or you can invest it in... Stocks and shares, for example. Mm. Isn't there an argument? Any money you earn anyway, yeah. ultimately you're going to give to your children. So if you've already got money in an ISA, earning interest, and if you're taking income from that, why do you need this whole separate pot? Because it doesn't add charges as well. It doesn't necessarily add charges. Um, it just depends on, on how you set it up. But there could be a few reasons. You may have sufficient assets that you've used your ISA allowance already. You might have maxed out your own ISA allowance, your 20000 so you want to use your children's. You may, any money in your name upon death, will be potentially liable to inheritance tax for your children, whereas if it's in their name already, it won't be. So lots of reasons why why you might want to do it. You might love your children. 
There's a lot of just general children's savings accounts you can get from banks, which aren't actually junior writers, but they're set up in similar similar ways. Yeah. Would you suggest people also look at those? Yeah, if they, if they offer a good rate of return, why not? The good thing about an ISA is it's it's protected from, from tax. So there's no income tax and there's no capital gains tax. So if you can get a much better return out of the ISA, then it's still worth worth exploring. Because you also have the personal savings allowance, don't you? £1,000? Well, if a you're a base rate taxpayer, yeah, correct. Or 500 for a higher rate. Correct. So you can earn that much tax-free yeah, without I mean, having any tax liability each year. So you need to earn quite a high rate of interest before you get to that amount each year. Yeah, and I think we probably need to spend some time actually breaking that down a bit more. But in effect, you're right that um, cash ISAs are, are dying a death because interest rates are so low and you can earn that amount elsewhere and not pay tax. But maybe we'll, we'll dive deeper into that another time. Okay. So you're a journalist, Mark, aren't you? Yes. Glad we've got that straight. What are your thoughts on all these nicknames, the acronyms that people come up with in the industry? Yeah, so... Jicers, Lysers, Nicers. The idea is it makes it easier to understand, I guess. But it just also creates a lot of confusion because acronyms, I think, can kind of baffle people. It would be a lot easier if it was just called an ISA and everything can just go into one of these tax wrappers rather than saying you need a junior ISA for your kids, you need a stocks and shares ISA for your investments, you need a cash ISA for your cash, you need a helps buy ISA to save for a deposit, you need a lifetime ISA for your pension and for your house deposit as well. There's always different types, whereas if it was just an ISA... But we're, we're using the term ISA. We've expected our listeners to know what that is. I think people would know what ISA means because it's been it's a long-established term and a lot of these newer terms haven't been around as long, so haven't been passed down generation to generation. And because now there are so many, I think that makes it more confusing. So people are used to the ISA, but they're not so used to junior ISA or JISA or a lifetime ISA or LISA or LISA. Or so, and you add all these new technical terms and it just adds to the confusion and puts people off. Yeah, I agree. Confusion. We have to, in the industry, in the profession, we have to learn all these different terms and make sure we know all the nuances of all of them and make sure we can advise people what's the best one for their needs. And that is all we have time for in this episode. Anything discussed in this programme should not be viewed as financial advice. But if you do need support, please visit the Orchard Practice website at www.topfs.co.uk. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at InforAPennyPod and the number one. Find us on SoundCloud and iTunes at InforAPennyPodcast. Do feel free to leave any feedback and post any financial issues you would like us to cover. But for now, thanks for listening. Goodbye.